Good morning, good morning. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us here this morning. We are continuing our sermon series um, entitled Renew Your Strength. It comes from Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And we have been talking about how joy and strength are intrinsically intertwined. If we want to renew our strength, we must renew our joy, specifically the joy of the Lord. So we've been looking at things that rob us of joy, right? Things that get in the way, things that promise us joy that don't deliver, uh, things that seem to be roadblocks to joy, and specifically how we can find our joy in the joy of the Lord. Today, we're going to be talking specifically about how joy is essential to forgiveness and how forgiveness is essential to joy. Now, discussions about joy and and forgiveness don't tend to go together. Um, Now, I'm not talking about when we're forgiven. Because when we're forgiven, joy and forgiveness definitely go together. You know, when you do something stupid, when you say the wrong thing at the wrong time, when you're selfish, when someone needed you to be selfless, when you, in a fog of self-focus, did the dumb thing. Um, acted out in ways you shouldn't have acted, driven by lust or addiction, um, driven by desires. You didn't count the cost of the choices you were making, nor did you notice the cost was being paid by people you loved in order to equip you to pursue things you shouldn't pursue, do things you shouldn't do. And then you wake up and you suddenly have the clarity to realize, holy cow, I'm about to lose something I truly value. And it's all because of the self-deception that caused me to fulfill myself at the cost of others. And you're in that place of humility and sorrow and guilt. To be met in that place with forgiveness is joy itself. To have somebody who has the right to judge you instead extend you grace, that is, that is the very experience of joy. To not get what you deserve, but to get what you could only hope for to be given a second chance when you've already spoiled your first or second or third. Joy and forgiveness go hand in hand when you're the one being forgiven. Not so much when you're the one that has to do the forgiving. That's where the rub comes in. They don't seem to go together when we're the ones who have to do the forgiving. That doesn't feel like joy. That just feels like work. That feels like pain. That feels like unwanted vulnerability. That that just feels bad. In fact, forgiveness feels like the very thing that's going to rob us of joy. To have to forgive is the very thing that's going to keep us from joy. But listen, as we're going to take a look at this morning, it takes joy to forgive. And it takes forgiveness to restore our joy. Joy and forgiveness are intertwined, whether you're the one being forgiven or the one extending forgiveness, because we must embrace the generosity of grace if we're going to experience the benefits of grace. We have to learn to forgive if we are going to live in the power of being forgiven. We have to learn how to forgive even as we have been forgiven. So let's take a look at our text this morning. We're going over to Matthew 18, Matthew 18. So grab your Bibles, flip open to Matthew 18. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 823. 
page 823, we're going to be looking at a specific interchange between Jesus and the Apostle Peter, talking about forgiveness. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he begins to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had as payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, fun text. Mm, This is a good one. (laughs) Forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't uh, uh, a fun topic. It's kind of a hard topic. Um, In the ancient world, the world in which Jesus spoke and and talked, it um, it it was a foolish notion. Jesus lived in a culture, in a time in which an eye for an eye was the only thing that made sense, right? If you hurt me, I hurt you. If you disrespect me, I disrespect you. If you you take from me, I take from you. If you in any way harm me, I harm you. An eye for an eye made way more sense in that ancient culture. In fact, there was a blurry line between revenge and justice, right? If I can at least get revenge, that that at least sounds a little bit like justice. I can make you pay for what you have done. Now, the reality is, is what was true in the ancient world is still true in ours. Um, Forgiveness is still not a very popular idea. It's not one we understand fully, nor does it feel like one that is safe. We, We much prefer an eye for an eye. We much prefer uh, the justice of revenge, right? To forgive feels weak. To forgive, I mean, it feels foolish, right? It was your foolishness that caused you to trust to begin with, and it was your trust that opened you up to hurt. And when that person hurt you because you trusted them, how foolish is it to ever trust again? Forgiveness feels like an open invitation, to ongoing and increased abuse. So when Jesus talks so much about forgiveness, 
it was beyond revolutionary. Um, you can say it was counterintuitive. It was that, but it was more than that. It was foolish. That's how people perceived it. Like, this is pure foolishness. What do you mean, forgive? Right? What, what, did, what good does that do? What does it accomplish? How does it, how does it correct the behavior? How does it protect me? And yet, it was one of the critical concepts as Jesus preached about the kingdom of heaven, right? In Matthew 18, in the paragraph before the one we read, uh, Jesus admonished them and and said to them, man, if if you have a brother who sinned against you, go in humility and pursue them. Talk to them about how they sinned against you so that if they hear you, you might gain your brother. And if they don't listen to you, then take a few others, not to beat them up, right? Not to, not to throw him over the hood of the car. No, to, to, to call him to love, to confront him about his lack of love. And if that doesn't work, man, bring it to the community of the church because, because they're in danger, right? Love, not revenge. If someone sinned against you, you pursue them. You don't sit back and hide. You don't sit back and nurse your wounds. You don't sit back and, and, and have your revenge fantasies, Right? Matthew 5 goes the other side. Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about when when you know somebody has an offense against you. He says, if you come to the altar and you're offering there, you're, you're offering to God, and remember that somebody has something against you, a complaint against you, leave your offering right there on the altar. Don't even offer it. Go first and be reconciled to your brother. Go pursue them. It's almost as if it was more important to Jesus that we learn to relate to one another in love than it is that we are right. It's almost as if it's more important to Jesus that we act in love than that we know and do other abstract moral good things. It's almost as if love is the fulfillment of the law, because it is. The law of Christ, love Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The embodiment of love requires us to pursue people we don't want to pursue, to love people we don't want to love, and to forgive people that we feel are unforgivable. Jesus valued love more than being right. Now, Peter, hearing these teachings, he always wanted to be the front man, right? Peter was that guy that always loved to be kind of, he just, by nature and by personality, just had to be the guy that was out on the front line. And he's listening to Jesus talk about these revolutionary things, about forgiveness and things like that. And he's processing and he's like, he's like, Lord, tell you what, I think maybe, I think maybe if somebody sins against me, I'll forgive them seven times. You're like, what a weird thing to say. Well, if you think about it, first of all, forgiving somebody once was counterintuitive and it seemed pretty stupid. Um, To forgive somebody like second time, like if you have somebody who sins against you the same way two times, to forgive them the second time is ridiculous. To do it seven times? So seven in the Hebraic world was the number of completion. And so, so for Peter in his mind, what he's saying is, if I forgive seven times, that's perfect forgiveness. That's complete forgiveness, like up to seven times, like they do the same exact thing seven times, and I forgive seven 
times. What do you think? What do you think, Jesus? Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Jesus is like, yeah, no, not so much. Seven's good. How about 77? Or as some translations put it, because the Greek is a little, maybe 70 times seven. So maybe it's 77, maybe it's 490. Hmm, try that, Peter. Listen, uh, Jesus' response uh, corrected Peter, but the correction wasn't about the number. It was about the way he viewed forgiveness. See, Peter's thinking numerically. He's thinking every single time someone offends me, so every time they sin against me, to forgive them actually costs me more than the time before. And so each time it's a, it's a more a heroic action. It's a greater effort to forgive and then forgive and then forgive and then forgive. Each time becomes this monumental testimony to my strength of will. Peter's thinking numerically and with each successive work of forgiveness, it's being more costly than the last. And what Jesus is saying is, look, this isn't an act to be counted. It's a way of approaching life that doesn't count. I'm not talking about forgiveness as a sequential acts of, of heroic gestures of forgiveness. I'm saying you need to adopt a posture of life that is rooted in and expressive of forgiveness. This isn't a heroic gesture, it's a continual posture. What he's saying is Christ followers are people who forgive. You want to know what a Christian is? That's what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who forgives. To follow Christ is to forgive. If you don't forgive, you're not following Christ. Why? Because we are people who have been forgiven. That's what we are. Jesus makes this clear with the story of the two debtors. Jesus says, man, there are two servants. Let me give you an illustration. There are two servants. The first one owed 10,000 talents. And you're like, ooh, that sounds like a lot of money. Maybe that's like $10,000. Nope. A talent was a unit of weight. A talent was equivalent to about 75 pounds of gold. A single talent was worth today about $600,000. 10,000 talents was equivalent to about $6 billion. Now we hear billion and million and trillion, these numbers thrown around so much that I think we tend to lose the relative sense of what they mean. One million seconds is 11 days. One billion seconds is 31 and a half years. A billion is a thousand million. He owed six billion dollars. Now, again, is Jesus getting hung up on the numbers? I don't think so. I think what he's saying is this man owed an unimaginably large amount of money. He owed a debt that was too great for anyone to pay. It was an impossible debt. He was in the hole so deep that it would be impossible for him to work his way out. When the master called the debt in, the man begged, have mercy on me. 
give me more time and I'll pay it back, which is a foolish thing to say with a debt so large. Um, and then the, the master did the ridiculous. <laughs> um, he's like, okay, I see you're begging. I hear what you're asking for and I'm going to do you one better. I'm not just going to let you have more time. I'm going to cancel your debt. It's gone. It's obliterated. It is wiped off the books. You no longer owe me six billion dollars. Bye. The man, shocked, leaves. And he's walking down the street thinking, holy cow, I no longer owe six billion dollars. Now, no longer owing six billion dollars is different than actually having any money. He may have been walking down the street poor. Not sure where he was going to get the money to pay for that night's dinner. Meanwhile, there's this other servant who owes him 100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii is a significant amount of money. Nothing compared to what he owed, right? Nothing compared to 10,000 talents. 100 denarii would be equivalent today to about $12,000. If somebody owed you $12,000, would you forget it? I don't think so. If somebody owed you $12, you might. You might be like, eh, all right, we'll just wipe that one off. No big deal. You might even forget it happened, right? I bought you lunch. Okay, I don't know. Who bought lunch last time? I don't remember. You're not going to forget if you loan somebody $12,000. You're probably not going to forget about it, especially if they're delinquent in paying you back. And the longer it takes for them to pay you back, the more things you can't do, which you could have done if you had the money. The more you have to sacrifice because they're not living up to their word. They're not doing what they promised they would do. They're withholding from you what is your due. And they're acting in injustice towards you when you had been gracious to them. This man walking down the street comes across this other servant who owes him $12,000. Now, we don't know the full story. Jesus doesn't give it to us, but he takes hold of him roughly, which tells you this probably wasn't the first confrontation. It wasn't the first time he said to this guy, hey, where's my $12,000, right? And the guy's like, give me more time, same exact request, give me more time and, and I will work for it. And the servant says, forget it. I'm done with you. I've given you way too many chances. I'm throwing you in debtor's prison. So he hands him over to the prisoners. Some other servants see this happen. They go and tell the master, the master is deeply offended. He calls the first debtor in and says to him, you're an idiot. I forgave you six billion dollars and you wouldn't extend the same grace to somebody who owed you 12,000? That shows a level of ingratitude that is beyond my comprehension. That shows a level of self-centeredness and selfishness that proves to me that while you took my gift, you didn't receive my love. Therefore, I'm going to hand you over to the debtor, prison. And the prisoner there, the Greek word can trans be translated as either jailer or torturer. It's not a pleasant word. It's not a pleasant place. And then very soberly, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, that's what my father's going to do to you if you refuse to forgive your brother. That's heavy. And the point is clear. If we're going to claim the forgiveness of God, 
we can't refuse to forgive others. The primary thing that marks us as followers of Jesus is that we're forgiven. That's it. We are the people God has pardoned at great cost to himself. That's who we are. We owed an insurmountable debt, greater than $6 billion. Like we don't even understand how great the debt was. We know Jesus had to die to pay it. We know, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, how that happened, we don't know. The price that was paid to make that happen, we don't know. All we could do was watch from the outside Jesus being crucified. What was happening in the midst of all of that pain, suffering, anguish, and death, we don't know. But we do know that love compelled God to pay that price, that we might be forgiven, that we might be set free from that debt so that God could look to us and say to us, your debt is canceled. It has been paid. The substitute took your place and he paid the price you couldn't pay so that you could receive the blessing you could never earn. You stand now in the very righteousness of God. You stand in the resurrection, no longer in the debt of your sin. So we don't know how great of a debt we had. We know it was so great Jesus had to pay, had to die to pay it. That he who knew no sin had to become sin. As a result, those of us who are followers of Christ, we're not perfect people. We're forgiven people. That is the single truest statement of us. We are God's forgiven people. We aren't the moral majority. We're the immoral beggars, the debtors who found the feast of God's grace. And we don't repay God's generosity by forgiving once or seven times or 77 times, or 490 times. We honor that grace by being transformed by that grace so that we become the embodiment of that grace. We honor that grace by actually allowing that grace to flow through us. The same forgiveness we received flows through us and empowers us to forgive those who have offended and hurt us. We honor this forgiveness the forgiveness we've received by growing in our ability to share it with others. It is non-negotiable for followers of Christ. We are the forgiven people and we are the people who forgive. All right, so that's the story. That's the, that's the text. That's the message Jesus is giving. I want to take a little bit of time and I want to unpack it for us because I think it's pretty important for us to understand, first of all, what forgiveness is, what forgiveness is not, and then the, the $6 billion question, how do we forgive? How do we forgive? So let's begin with what forgiveness is. Taking cues from this story, we can say that forgiveness is an initial and ongoing act of my will whereby I release the debt of those who have wronged me. Forgiveness is an initial and ongoing act of my will whereby I release the debt of those who have wronged me. There's a number of ways to look at betrayal, at hurt, 
at pain. There are people who do things to you they don't have the right to do. There are people who withhold things from you they don't have the right to withhold. There are people who do active evil to you and there are people who passively stand by while they do it. There are people that by simply the nature of their human limitations can't be what we need them to be, who disappoint us and put us to shame because we needed them to be more than they could be for us. In each of these situations, a debt is incurred, a wound is suffered. That wound needs to be healed, that debt has to be paid. The question is, who's going to pay it? Revenge says, you're going to pay it. An eye for an eye says, you're going to pay it. You hurt me, I hurt you. You take from me, I take from you. You insult me, I insult you. And somehow that is supposed to pay the debt. The problem is, if you blind me and I blind you, the world's just full of blind people. It doesn't heal anything. If I extract pain from you, it doesn't in any way alleviate the pain you have given me. That's not justice, that's vengeance, and vengeance doesn't bring healing. It's not rooted in joy, nor is it stemming toward love. It is simply an expression of outrage and hatred and self-righteous judgment, and as a result leads to bitterness and resentment and a shrinking of the soul. It is darkness. Forgiveness is when I release my right to seek revenge. Forgiveness is when I release my right to hold that person accountable for what they did. Forgiveness is when I release my right to try to exact something from them because of what they did to me. Listen, when when someone hurts us, someone has to foot the bill. Somebody has to pay the price. Somebody has to hurt Forgiveness says, I'll pay that price for you. Forgiveness says, you hurt me, I'll pay the price of pain. I'll suffer the pain without trying to share it with you or inflict it back on you. Now listen, I know that sounds completely illogical. An eye for an eye sounds a lot more logical. You hurt me, I hurt you. Right? At least then you're not going to hurt me again. Because you won't find me, you're blind. You know? You insult me, I insult you. You degrade me, I degrade you. You betray me, I betray you. Hmm. That, there's something about that that just makes you feel like you have some kind of power. The problem is it's a false power. That only takes you away from life because at the end, your inflicting a pain on them doesn't reduce in any way the pain they've already inflicted on you. You have to pay the price of that pain. You don't have a choice. Forgiveness simply says, I don't have a choice, but I do have a solution. And my solution isn't by trying to re-inflict pain on you. The solution isn't by continuing the cycle of evil. The solution is by embracing the power of love. And that frees me to forgive. Grace disrupts the cycle of vengeance. It doesn't retaliate. It doesn't seek payback. 
It doesn't return insult for insult. It removes the debt and it offers grace in its place. Forgiveness is a choice where we repent of our need to sit in judgment over those who have hurt us. That's what forgiveness is. Let's talk quickly about what it's not. Because I want to make sure you're not hearing what I'm not saying, okay? Um, Forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the absence of accountability. I think that's one of the, the lies that we tell ourselves. Is if I forgive you, then you're let off the hook. If I forgive you, then you're not held accountable. If I forgive you, if I actually give you grace instead of try to return to you what you gave to me, you won't be held accountable for what you've done. And I want you to know you're right. They do need to be held accountable. Just not by you. That's not your job description. That's not the seat that you get to sit in. That's God's job not yours. Forgiveness doesn't release someone from the debt they owe. It releases you from your right to collect it. Forgiveness isn't a passive response to suffering. It is an active step of faith to trust God with your suffering. Forgiveness isn't letting somebody off the hook. It's trusting that God, the God of justice and of grace, knows better how to respond to them than you ever could. You're getting yourself off the hook, the hook of bitterness and resentment, darkness, hatred, and violence. But it is an active step of faith. It's not passive. It is an active step of faith to trust in God. And that's why I say it's an act of the will, because it's a choice It's a choice to give God the pain and trust God as judge. It's a choice that has to be made. And wouldn't it be nice if you only had to make that choice and then it was all over, right? Here's the second thing you need to know is that forgiveness is not a one and done. I don't know if you've ever gone through that process of of wrestling with a hurt, wrestling with a wound, wrestling with a betrayal and getting to a point where like, I will forgive them, right? And you're doing your best in that moment. You're praying, you're giving it to God, you're releasing your right to judge, and and then you're like, good, now that's over, right? Yeah, that's not the way it works. Um, Forgiveness is not one and done. That's why forgiveness is both an initial act of faith and an ongoing commitment to faith. It is both an event and a process. In other words, you have to choose to forgive, which is an event, And then you have to continue to choose to forgive, which is a process. It's a choice that you have to keep on choosing. Because wounds don't just go away when you tell them to. You can't just tell a wound in your soul, okay, we're done. I forgave. Bye-bye. That's not the way it works. Wounds take time to heal. Now, here's the thing is, is there's a lie we're, we're told all the time, right? That time heals all wounds. Not true. Time only heals clean wounds. Forgiveness is the grace that cleanses the wound. But that doesn't make it go away right away. And for some of you, it's not going to go away for the rest of your lives. It is a wound that will hurt you until you are brought into glory. 
And what ends up happening is every time something triggers that wound, every time something reopens it, every time something sticks its ugly little finger into it and makes it hurt all over again, you have to forgive all over again. It is an event and it is a process. You have to take that pain as a prompting to renew the grace of forgiveness, not as a prompting to become unforgiving. That's why it's a bold step of faith that we have to just keep taking. It is a journey, not, not simply a, a one and done. Thirdly, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. There, there are certain circles, certain Christian circles that, that they're going to teach that this is a biblical requirement for forgiveness. They'll quote Isaiah 43, 25, that, that God has forgotten our sins, right? And because God has forgotten our sins, that clearly is what forgiveness is. And so therefore, if you've forgiven somebody, you will never remember their sins again. And usually what they mean by that is, is you know, you now have to relate to that person as if they never did it. First of all, that is both theologically dumb and psychologically impossible. Um, when it says that God forgets our sins, it doesn't mean he forgets our sins, right? God is omniscient. He doesn't forget anything. There's nothing he's never known. He knows all things at all times. There's nothing that can happen that he didn't already know. He doesn't even, there's no probability that could happen that he doesn't already know. He is omniscient. If it can be known, he knows it. When it says that God forgot our sins, what it means is that he consciously made a choice to no longer relate to us through those sins. Those sins no longer stand between us and God. God has forgiven those sins and has set them aside. He now knows us in the context of grace. It changes the way he relates to us, not what he knows about us. God doesn't call us to forget the woundedness we've received at the hands of others. That is an impossible requirement. But he does call us to relate to people differently. To no longer relate to them through the sin they've done to us, but to relate to them through the grace that we give them. It's a different way of relating to them. Which means that we're called to repent, which is a funny thing to say when we're the ones being sinned against. But the temptation when someone sins against us is to justify our sin against them, isn't it? You hurt me, therefore I'm justified in hurting you. You hurt me, therefore I'm justified in looking down on you. You hurt me, therefore I'm justified in despising you. I'm justified in having revenge fantasies about you. I'm justified in taking pleasure when you suffer, right? We use their sin as an opportunity to justify our sin. And when, when our sin is reawakened, the temptation to sit in that seat of judgment, we need to take that as an opportunity to repent, to recognize that God is calling us to love, not to judgment to forgive, to see them not through their sin, but through grace, and to refuse to feel justified in our despising of them because of their behavior. Finally, uh, forgiveness is not reconciliation. The final thing you need to know that uh, forgiveness is not, it is not reconciliation. Forgiveness always opens the door to reconciliation, but it doesn't always result in reconciliation. So forgiveness is my releasing of the debt, right? I'm not going to hold it against you. I no longer relate to you 
through the lens of your sin. I relate to you through the, through the process of grace, right? Reconciliation is the restoration of relationship. Restoration is when two opposing parties come together and there's a renewal of trust and vulnerability and mutual dependence. Forgiveness always opens the door to reconciliation. Always. We can't say, well, I forgive you, I'll just never, never, never trust you again. I forgive you, but I will never like you again. I forgive you, but I will never, ever, ever consider being around you again. That's not forgiveness. That's playing with words. It is not embracing grace. But there are people that we are to forgive that we will not be reconciled to because they're unsafe, because they're unrepentant, because they have not changed. Right? We've seen this numerous times over the last decade with the church. We'll have a, a woman married to an abusive man, and, and, and we always counsel her to forgive her husband for his abuse of her or his abuse of their kids. She must forgive. But she doesn't have to be reconciled. We don't send a woman back into an abusive relationship simply because she's forgiven. He has to repent. He has to change. Right? Reconciliation occurs when trust is reestablished, and that requires somebody to be worthy of trust. Reconciliation and forgiveness are two separate things, but forgiveness always opens the door to reconciliation. Forgiveness allow, uh, leads us to a place where we, we acknowledge if they repent, if God gives them the grace to see their behavior as harmful and to repent of it, to change and become worthy of trust again, forgiveness says, then I will walk through that door and reestablish trust. The relationship may not be the same as it was, but I'm open to a new relationship based on trust, vulnerability, and mutual valuing when it's worthy of that. If they're a follower of Christ, you're going to be reconciled to them in the end anyway. In the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be sitting at the same table, the table of grace, celebrating the same Savior, celebrating the same forgiveness. So forgiveness and reconciliation are different. They're overlapping, but they are different. So there are times we can forgive, but maintain healthy relational boundaries that keep us away from those who have not repented of their sin. All right, so this leaves us. We know what, we know what forgiveness is. We know what forgiveness is not. And it leaves us with the critical question, how do we do it? And this, of course, is the $6 billion question. How do we forgive? Because it's hard. Jesus only gives us one critical piece of advice. He says that we are to forgive even as we are forgiven. Now, if we hear that as a command and a command only, if we see it simply as an obligation that we must live up to, a performance that we must provide to God, it will be an impossible wait. We don't have the strength to do that. We don't have the power to perform that way. It is a command that cannot be obeyed. But listen, we need to see it for what it is. This isn't simply a command, it's an invitation. This isn't simply an obligation, it's an empowerment. Because when you're forgiven, listen, God didn't just erase your debt. He didn't just take away your sin. He gave you his blessing. He filled you with his spirit. 
you have within you the power of God, the very power that forgave you is now at work in you to empower you to forgive others. To forgive others as you have been forgiven isn't simply a command that says you need to go do this. It is an invitation to actually enter into the grace of God that empowers you to forgive in ways you don't have the power to do on your own. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of grace The joy of your forgiveness is your strength to forgive others. We need to dig into our relationship with God in order to move forward in our relationship with others. Give you a few quick points and then we'll wrap it up. That means, first of all, we need to renew our experience of God's grace. If you're struggling with unforgiveness, which means you're human, and that means probably everybody in this room, If you're struggling with forgiving somebody who has hurt you, the first thing we need to do is renew our experience of God's grace. We need to go back and renew our gratitude as those who have been forgiven. That reawakens our humility. It reawakens that sense of joy and wonder that we are loved by God and our $6 billion debt has been paid. It awakens within us the awe of of one who has been given a gift that is beyond estimation. It reawakens our joy. And then, having been lifted by that joy, having been awakened to generosity by that joy, we're empowered to move forward in forgiving having been forgiven, having reawakened our wonder at God's forgiveness, at God's amazing grace, we are equipped to forgive. It is in rediscovering the joy of the Lord that we find our strength to move forward in the process because we are set free from the things that sap our energy, the bitterness, the resentment, the revenge fantasies, the self-righteousness. When you're filled with gratitude, you're not also going to be filled with bitterness. The gratitude that responds to grace flushes out the bitterness that poisons our soul. So the first thing we need to do is renew our experience of God's grace. The second thing is that we need to redirect the pain from rehearsing to renewing. Um, So when the wound, the wound in your soul, gets reopened, when the betrayal becomes fresh again, when the, the, the conversation comes back to your mind, when, when, when the things they did to you settle into your imagination in unwelcome ways, when, when the things they should have done for you just grate on you because you couldn't do things for yourself and you were dependent on them. When those things are spinning in your mind, when those things are gripping your heart, when those things are... are you know, like there are times, I, I don't, like there have been times, like I literally, I'm waking up out of a wonderful dream and before I'm even fully awake, I am fully immersed in the conflict I want to forget. And it's like, oh man, I remember there was a nice dream, but before I was even fully awake, I was immersed in, a, in this conversation I was having with this guy in my head that I didn't want to have, right? What do you do with that? Well, here's the thing, you can't just tell it to stop. I don't know if you've figured that out yet. You can't command your imagination. 
Hey, stop thinking about that. You can't command your heart. Stop feeling those things. That doesn't work. You have to redirect. You have to redirect the pain from rehearsing the woundedness to renewing your gratitude. You need to recenter yourself on the grace that you've received instead of the wounds that you've suffered. You need to recenter yourself on the strength that empowers instead of the pain that robs you of power. Instead of rehearsing the offense, we need to relive our forgiveness. That allows us to both rediscover our humility and our joy and our gratitude and to reawaken our experience of our shared humanity with those who have hurt us, which is critical. And that's the final point. Having renewed our experience of God's grace, having redirected the pain from rehearsing the woundedness to renewing our joy, we can rediscover our shared Imago Dei with our common debtors. Uh, What that means is we can see the image of God in the people who have hurt us. One One of the things that happens after someone has hurt us is we have this tendency to dehumanize those who have brought the pain. We start seeing them as monsters. We start seeing them as inhuman. We, 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 sh- we lose our sense of shared humanity with them. They are someone who did something that now makes them unworthy to be considered on the same plane of humanity. I don't have a shared humanity with them, which makes me feel justified in actually acting as God over them in my imagination to judge them, to condemn them, to damn them, to do whatever it is that I am doing to them in my mind, right? This process rehumanizes those who have done inhuman things to you, which is a good thing. When Stephen was being martyred in the book of Acts, even as they are throwing rocks at him to kill him, he cries out, God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What? See, it allows him to disassociate their behavior from their worth. These are still people created in the image of God. They're doing ungodly things. These are still people created in the image of God. They are doing demonic things. But that doesn't erase the fact that they are still people created in the image of God. They are worthy of the respect that is due to the God of their image. We are not allowed to dehumanize those God has created as human. We recognize no longer simply their offense. We start recognizing our common need. I am a person in need of forgiveness and so are you. I am a person desperately in need of grace and so are you. It allows me to love those who are even acting in hate toward me. It allows us to rediscover our shared Imago Dei, which frees me to forgive. To extend them the grace that God has given me. It's no longer a heroic act on my behalf trying to prove myself to God. It is now me simply giving what I've received, sharing what I've experienced. It is me coming to the table of grace and then taking that grace and sharing it with another debtor desperately in need of that grace. We can see them as the broken sinners that they are, created in the image of God, desperate for grace. And we can trust the God of grace 
to work his justice or his grace on their behalf as he sees fit. Because he's God and we're not. All right, let me just, last week I shared with you guys a practical way of praying. We talked about the green gremlins of discontent that come in and rob you of your joy. And I talked to you about a kind of a prayer exercise that I do that helps me when I'm being gripped by discontent. I want to do the same thing for you this morning, share with you another prayer exercise that I do when I find my heart gripped by pain and I'm finding it very difficult to forgive. And I'm going to just kind of admit up front, this this one's going to take a little bit of vulnerability on your behalf. If you don't want to do it, I totally understand. You just want to sit there and be like, okay, I'll listen and maybe I'll try it later. Cool. I'm good with that. But I'm going to invite you to enter into it with me this morning if you trust me and if you're, if you're willing to do this together. And so if you are, just go ahead and close your eyes. And I want you to call to mind, and it's not going to be hard because you've been thinking about him or her this entire time, the person who hurt you, the person you're having a hard time forgiving. And I'm guessing along with that person comes the noise of accusations, of guilt, of anger, of condemnation, maybe conversations you've had or events that come. And it spins, man, I don't know about you, but when that stuff, like, it's, it's like, a, like I'm stuck in the middle of a tornado and it's full of noise and it, and it hurts and, and, and I just feel helpless and angry. And Okay, I want you to picture a door. And I want you to walk through that door and leave that stuff on the other side. Close it behind you. This room is silent. And in this room is your Savior. You're coming to God. You're coming to Jesus. And and in this case, you're coming to, to the Jesus of the scars. You're coming to the same Jesus that met Thomas. His hands are wounded. His feet are roughly torn. His side is pierced. And he's inviting you near. He's inviting you to come and trust your pain with a Savior who knows pain. To rest that pain with him and and to be embraced by him to be renewed by him, to be loved by him, to be hugged by him. You are coming to your God of grace to receive grace in your time of need, and he is eager to share that grace. And I encourage you to sit there. Sit there long, as long as it takes for you to start feeling the joy of his love. Sit there as long as it takes for you to start feeling a renewed gratitude for a God who loved you enough that he paid a price you could never pay. He went into a darkness you could never understand so that you would never have to go there yourself. So that you could be with him in his kingdom of light. Allow that to reawaken your joy, to reawaken your gratitude. And don't rush it. But eventually you might feel the courage to pray for the person who hurt you. To talk to him about them. 
to share with him your hurt, your sense of betrayal, your fear, your loss of trust, what it has cost you, knowing that there's nothing you can't share with him he hasn't already experienced with you and on your behalf, knowing he'll comfort you. And then ask him, Ask him to give his heart for this person to you. Now don't rush that. Don't try to push straight to forgiveness. Sit as long as it takes to renew the joy of your forgiveness. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And he will give you the strength to forgive. Sometimes I do this a dozen times a day, y'all maybe more. When I'm really kind of like my brain just keeps going back to that wound or to that conversation or to that betrayal or to that, I will do this over and over and over and over again. And sometimes I'm tempted to beat myself up. Like, wasn't I just in this quiet room and I forgot it already? Don't do that. Give yourself the grace to come back as often as you need to come back. Let me close us in word of prayer, and then we're going to share communion together. Father, we thank you that you invite us near. Jesus, I thank you that you paid the price that we couldn't pay. That you are a God of grace who gives us grace in our time of need. That you are the ever-flowing generosity of love. Lord, will you meet us in our need? Will you meet us in our pain? Will you meet us when we feel isolated and alone, vulnerable and afraid, when we feel angry and betrayed? Will you meet us and reawaken us to your love? Reawaken us to your grace. Reawaken us to our forgiveness. Reawaken us to the power of love and and having been reawakened Lord will you empower us then to love even as we are loved to forgive even as we've been forgiven to give grace to others even as we have received grace from you that we might be enriched and empowered that our joy might be full that, that we might be freed from the darkness that threatens to grip our hearts the unforgiveness the bitterness and the resentment that wants to enslave us. That we might walk in the kingdom of light free because we are loved to love. Spirit, you are the only one that can do this in us. This is your work in us, not our work for you. And we come to you in our humble, helpless need, asking for grace, knowing that you're pleased to give it. Meet us where we are and take us to where we need to be. We trust you and we need you. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.